Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth the Ram and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged my father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David, but David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David, the earnest, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, I will not send you word and let you know. Oh, will I not send you word and let you know? But my father intend, But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he, as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone easel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I was shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because surely as the Lord lives, you are safe, there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the Christ sat down to eat, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal 
either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spirit to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat, because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out to him, isn't the arrow behind you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Thank you, Joshua, very much indeed for reading that. Uh, verse 29, have you ever been ordered back by your brother to come to a family event? It's a common experience, I think I have. Good, well we're coming back to 1 Samuel, and uh, it's great to be um, searching for a king in this book of the Bible. We've been doing that uh, as our book of the year since September, and we've come now to chapter 20. We're going to look at it in one second, but first we're going to pray. So let me pray as we begin. The words of Jonathan in verse 14, this is what he says. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live. Father God, thank you that you are the Lord who shows us the kind of loving kindness that never fails, that continues as long as we live and, and on into the future beyond the grave. And so I pray, Father God, whatever's on our minds this afternoon, that we would be aware of your loving kindness as we stand as individuals before your King, Jesus Christ, this afternoon. Now show us more of him and the friendship he shows us, we ask, and we ask him in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, you know that everything that's worth having comes at a cost. Do you know that? I think that's true. Everything that's worth having comes at a cost. Whether it's the, um, the physical cost of a sort of sore arm uh, to protect you from COVID-19. I don't know whether you've been to that experience yet. Maybe you're too young. Still got that to come. 
Well, maybe it's the mental cost uh, this summer. I can see a few people here are going to be sitting exams. Perhaps it's the mental cost of revising all of that endless uh, sort of summarizing and committing things to memory so that you will pass your exams. Maybe it's the financial cost of a birthday for a close friend, a big bunch of flowers or a massive box of chocolates or that thing that they've been longing for for ages. That's a financial cost that you bear because you want them to have a great day. Or maybe it's the emotional cost of bringing up your kids. It's hard. But everything worth having comes at a cost. Everything worth having comes at a cost. So I wonder what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus Christ. I wonder what it's going to cost you and me to follow Jesus. You know, we're not always that good at, at, at talking about that. We're much more used to talking about what we gain by following Jesus Christ. And, and, and I want you to know that having a relationship with Jesus Christ is, is, is worth having. There is nothing more precious. But it comes at a cost. And here in chapter 20, uh, in a section of 1 Samuel, it's all about David, as we've been seeing for the last few weeks. We've been following his story for a few weeks. He's been made king, and now we're seeing him sort of on the run. And uh, he's not yet established. He's not yet on the throne. But just for this one chapter, the camera turns onto Jonathan. And there's a chapter all about him. This, this is his moment on stage. He is the one in the limelight. And it's all about his relationship with David. Do, do you know what happens when, I, I don't know whether if, if you've got friends, uh, you've got a sort of habit saying that you often do together. Uh, when I meet my friend Dave, we always go out to the bridge pub together. That's just, that's just sort of what we do. When Saul meets David, he chucks a spear. That's, that's what he does in 1 Samuel. That's his sort of habit. Every time that David and Jonathan meet each other, they, they make or they reaffirm a covenant between the two of them. Every time they meet, a covenant is mentioned. And this chapter is, is saying that it is sometimes very costly to live in covenant relationship with God's king. It can cost us. And that's not just of academic interest. Okay, we're not just mentioning that because uh, we're interested in the document, which is 3,000 years old. Many of us here in this building are Christians. We call ourselves Christian people. And God still has a king. And it's not a king that we can see every day, but it, he is a real king, and, and he's called Jesus Christ, and we've committed ourselves to him. And, and the day that we became a Christian, I don't know what day that was for you. I was about uh, 13 years old. I was in a field on the Isle of Wight. The day that we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we come into a committed covenant with him. And, and, and everything worth having comes at a cost, yeah? Now, I don't know if for some of us we might need reminding. We're reminding about that. Perhaps we just wanted our faith to be about sort of upbeat positivity, nothing too heavy. It's not going to be a lift on a Sunday afternoon. Maybe that's the sort of way we've gone thinking. Or, or um, for others, maybe we're paying a really heavy cost at the moment. And we're just sort of clinging on by our fingernails. And we need to know why it's worth it. Or um, 
Maybe you're just on the outside looking in. Perhaps you just come along to have a look at Christianity and Christians, see, what's, see what it's about. And, and you're wondering what sort of cost you might have to pay if you become a Christian yourself, yeah? Well, if you're in any of those situations, then 1 Samuel 20 is, um, is the place to go because it's got plenty to say. We're going to back, go back through the story of that chapter and then we're going to look at the two things that I think it teaches us about relationship with God's chosen King, Jesus Christ. Now, um, you might have seen the film, you might have heard about this theory. There's a theory called Six Degrees of Separation which says that everyone on earth is connected by a chain of friendships that is about six people long. Have you come across, come across that sort of theory? Yeah, six degrees of separation. Uh, apart from the Christian world, where basically everyone knows Nathan, he's got uh, 1,560 friends on Facebook. So in the Christian world, just two degrees of separation. But um, everywhere else, six degrees. But you notice as you read through this chapter, there is... There are no degrees of separation between David and Jonathan. Have you ever come across two guys who are, who are so close? David's the king who's been chosen, but he's on the run. Yeah, he's been anointed, but he's in, in, in fear of his life. Jonathan is the, king, is, the, is the son of the king, son of King Saul, who's been rejected. Saul's been rejected, but he's still on the throne. So it's fair to say they're not the most natural of friends, yeah? but there are no degrees of separation between them. Uh, if you've got a Bible in front of you, maybe you've got your phone uh, open. Turn back to chapter 18, verse one. Chapter 18, verse one, very briefly. And you'll see um, the connection that's formed between David and Jonathan. We're picking up the story just after David has, has beaten Goliath, you remember? Chapter 18, verse 1, we saw this last week. This is what it says. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Some versions say a bit more literally, uh, the soul of Jonathan was knitted, knitted to the soul of David. And it says he loved him as himself. The soul of Jonathan was knitted. They were connected. There were no degrees of separation. And then verse 3, this is the reason Jonathan made a covenant with David. Um, Nathan said a couple of weeks ago, there's no evidence at all that this is a, a sexual relationship. It's not that they're uh, in a same-sex relationship. Um, in fact, that, that word knitted in, in the Old Testament is used of family relationships and political alliances, but never sexual relationships. But it does describe this incredibly strong relationship, this covenant relationship between two men. This is how my Bible study, uh, my um, study Bible, defines a covenant. That's what it says. It is a blood oath that extends to the very extremes of life and death. It's a blood oath that extends to the very extremes of life and death. Let let me show you how this friendship plays out in the chapter. Let's briefly go through some of the events that happen. And, and the covenant is right at the heart of that first section, which happens in verses 1 to 11. And this happens at Jonathan's house. 
Okay, Jonathan's house, probably in Gibeah. And David, this unlikely king, turns up bedraggled on Jonathan's front doorstep. And uh, he's, he's looking a bit the worse for wear. Uh, we used to um, help out with the toddler group when I was a curate down Eastbourne. And we had a lady and uh, he just turned up and uh, uh, we asked her where she'd come from. And, and all she would say was, I had to leave Glasgow in a hurry. I'm not quite sure what had happened to her. She had to leave Glasgow in a hurry. David has had to leave Nioth in a hurry, all right? 20 verse one, then David fled from Nioth at Ranar, and he turns up on Jonathan's front doorstep and he's confused about why Saul is trying to hunt him down. And verse one, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father? He's trying to kill me. And so he asked Jonathan if, if he might be able to find out why there's a price on his head. You know, why he's ended up on the FBI most wanted fugitive list of, um, of, his, of his day. And David comes up with a plan and he says, listen, if I don't turn up to the feast, which is going to happen, could, could you, Jonathan, report back on, on how your dad takes it? What his reaction is? And Jonathan agrees to that because of, um, because of the covenant. Can you see how it's mentioned in verse 8? you see that? Have a look at verse 8. It's come up on the screen as well. As for you, says Jonathan, show kindness to your servant. Um, this is David speaking, actually, sorry. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. That's what rivals normally did uh, in about 1000 BC. Why hand me over to your father? The covenant is at the heart of their relationship. Scene two. They go out into the field. This is in uh, verses 12 to 23, where they can talk a bit more openly, like in a spy film, where they, they all seem to go out to the car park, and they all um, stand next to a busy road when they want to have a, a conversation which um, is free from surveillance. And so they have an honest conversation. And Jonathan agrees to go to the feast, which David is going to miss. And uh, they agree on a signaling system. So Jonathan's going to go and do archery practice the next day, verse 19, uh, while David hides behind a bush somewhere nearby. And uh, this is their signaling system. If Jonathan says to his archery assistant, the arrows are on this side of you, then David is safe. Okay, that's the signal. If he says, look, the arrows are beyond you, then David has to run for his life. But at the heart of it all is the covenant. Verse 16. See that? So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, this, this, this committed, promise-laden, binding agreement. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. With the house of David, that seems a bit premature, doesn't it? He's still, he's still a guy on the run. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And so it plays out. Scene three, verses 24 to 34, back at the palace. David's not there. 
And when it comes to a second day that David does a no-show, Saul's violence just erupts and, and he wants um, David's blood. Which is why in scene four, back in the field, the signaling system swings into action and, and Jonathan tells David to run for his life. And he carries on his precarious journey as a fugitive king. We'll see more of that next week. That's the chapter then. Two men joined by covenant relationship. But what's it meant to teach us? Two things. And, and the first is this. That coming to God's king or committing to God's king involves a radical cost. You need to know that. I need to know that. Coming to God's king involves a radical cost. You know, for Jonathan, as far as Jonathan's concerned, there is a political cost that runs all the way through this chapter. We, we forget this, you see, but Jonathan is heir to the throne. He's the guy who's due to become king after Saul. But what, what you notice back in chapter 18, a couple of chapters ago, is, is that when Jonathan comes into this covenant with David, it says he takes off his tunic and, and, and he takes off his sword and his bow and his belt and he gives them all to David. He gives them to this ragged, fugitive king. And he says, here I am, I'm gonna take off all this stuff because you deserve to be king. Comes at a political cost. It's like, like that moment that I vaguely remember in um, season one of the West Wing. Do you remember where um, President Bartlett's presidency it's looking a bit shaky, and uh, four people step forwards. The first says, I, I serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States. And CJ steps forward, you know CJ? I serve at the pleasure of the President. Sam, I serve at the pleasure of President Bartlett. Toby, I serve at the pleasure of the President. And, and Jonathan, who is heir to the throne, is serving at the pleasure of God's king. And he's saying, I, I've decided to follow you as my king. I'm going to give up all my rights to the throne, the right for my children to inherit the throne, and I give them all to you. I serve at the pleasure of God's chosen king. And can you see that's what particularly upset Saul at the feast in, in verse 31? Have a look down at that, verse 31. This is what enrages Saul so much that his son has given away the, the, his claim to the throne. Verse 31, as, as long as this son of Jesse lives on this earth, that's David, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Saul's saying, don't you see, Jonathan, don't you see, if, if David inherits the throne, then you won't. You've just sold the birthright to the family. You just handed him everything on a plate. Why would you do that? What were you thinking? You know, when I, when I covenant to someone as my king, I'm saying that I will give them complete control of my life. 
And that is an outrageous thing to do, yeah? I'm, I'm, I'm handing over all those things I once felt I was in control of, and I'm taking them off and I'm giving them to him. This is, this is personal, my money, my time, my relationships, my ambitions. You can't covenant to a king without paying the cost. You hand over the keys. Now we're in an individualistic culture, and so that is really going to hurt. We can't say to our king anymore, that's not your business, that doesn't belong to you, because it does. We've handed it over. Coming to God's king involves radical cost to our status, but then also to our relationships. And you can see that the cost that it is to Jonathan, you know, he's, he's trying to do the best by his dad, isn't he? You, can you see that? He's, tr he's trying to give his dad the credit if he possibly can. Uh, never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Saul has said in, in chapter 19, he's using only a finger on David. And um, who can blame Jonathan for taking him seriously? But then he goes to the feast and he hears the rage in verse 30. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of the mother who bore you? The Hebrews even read it. It's an awful thing, isn't it? When a parent won't even acknowledge you as their own child. It's an awful thing. Uh, before, I've, I've, I've asked Dawn's permission to tell this story, but um, uh, before Dawn's mum was a Christian, uh, she was once so angry at Dawn for some perceived slight uh, that she wrote Dawn a letter and rather than signing it mum as she would normally, she signed it with her Christian name to say I'm not your mum anymore. That's a hard thing, isn't it? And look at the grief that Jonathan feels in verse 34. Can you see the grief of that? Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. It takes a lot to divide a man from his feet, doesn't it? But this guy's heartbroken. He's a godly man, but he's reached the point where serving God's king and, and honoring his dad just become incompatible. You can't have both. And I've mentioned this, if, mentioned this a few times um, before, but when I said that I was going to leave medicine and train to become a bubble teacher, I've never seen my dad so angry. Never seen him. He's, he's, he's you know, he was a mild mad man. I've never seen him so angry. He said I was ungrateful. I was wasting his money. I was bringing shame on the family. I was throwing away my future. And anyway, I wouldn't do it very well. That's what he said. He said, I hear you've got to persuade people of the truth of the Bible. You've never persuaded anyone of anything. And it was heartbreaking. It's genuinely heartbreaking. How, how much more so for someone I was reading about this week on the Open Doors website, a teenager called Isa, 
who became a Christian from a Muslim background and her father tried to kill her. You know, our covenant with Jesus Christ will lead us into all kinds of messiness and difficulty and sometimes into danger. And you'll have experienced that, you know, particularly if, you're Chris, if your parents aren't yet Christians. And my dad is a Christian. Uh, my dad became a Christian before he died and I became very supportive. But maybe your parents aren't yet Christians, you know, and they're, and they're worried that we're giving our money away because that's our future, yeah? That's our security. Or, or they're worried that we're bringing up our children in London where there's so much crime and so much pollution and the schools aren't the best, you know, because we want to commit to our church. And, uh, and they want you to come and see them at the weekend and they don't understand why, why you have to leave to go back to church. And that, that friction is just, is just heartbreaking sometimes. It's just a tension. And, and besides, they don't get it. And uh, people realize, our friends realize, they're not number one in our lives anymore. And uh, our bosses realize that they don't own us. And um, it's costly to be in covenant with Jesus. Well, you might be sitting there thinking, um, I've come all the way to Middleton Square this afternoon uh, to, to find out about the Christian life, to be a little bit encouraged. And to be honest, you're not selling it. Okay, this isn't, this isn't a huge encouragement to me. Um, well, I hope I've been realistic, but there is a second point as well. And uh, we're gonna look at it more briefly. But this is what makes it 100% worthwhile. Okay, if you asked Jonathan what made his life worthwhile, it would be his covenant friendship with David. And if you asked many Christians here what makes all that cost worthwhile, it would be their covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's our second point. Coming to God's King involves a covenant of unfailing love. Coming to God's King involves a covenant of unfailing love. You know, um, quite often in 1 Samuel, and this is one of the, one of the themes of the book, we, we've come to David, God's chosen king, and we see all kinds of reactions to the king that God's chosen. We saw some of those last week, do you remember? Nathan put a diagram up on the screen of the different ways that people were reacting to God's king. But here in this chapter, you get a stunning picture of the, of the reaction that David has to someone who's committed to him. You see the love that God's king shows to someone who's come into covenant relationship. So can you imagine a king like this? Can you imagine a king like this? A king who serves. It's quite a rare thing, isn't it? Verses seven and eight. David twice calls himself your servant. In the original language, three times, he says that he is Jonathan's servant, repeatedly. Verse 41, have a look down at that. David, David bows down before Jonathan. This, this is God's chosen king bowing down before an ex-prince. 
He's a king who serves. David is God's chosen king, but he serves the one who comes to him. A king who serves, a king of unfailing kindness. Can you imagine a king like that? Verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. Talks about unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness. Loyal love, like the love of the Lord. That's what's expressed by God's chosen king. You know, in, in, in 2 Samuel 9, David here commits to, to, to looking after and loving Jonathan's family. In 2 Samuel 9, many, many chapters forwards, long after Jonathan's been killed, David is still looking after Jonathan's family, even his disabled son, comes to his supper table, comes under royal protection because of the faithful love, like the love of the Lord that David shows. A king of deep emotion. Can you see that? David, this great king and this immense warrior who has slain his tens of thousands, weeps with joy. He, he, he weeps in verse 42 with the pain of being separated on the neck of his friends. Jonathan and David both weep, but it's David who weeps the more. A king of peaceful friendship. Verse 42, see what he says? Go in peace. Uh, this is Jonathan, go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. Saying the Lord is witness between you and me. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to be in relationship with a king like that? Everything worth having comes at a cost, yeah? And so as we come to the unlikely king, Jesus Christ, who, who in his earthly ministry at time looked bedraggled, he was under attack. We're just acknowledging that he was the rightful king all along, yeah? Nothing to lose. We're just... We're just admitting that, it, that other relationships are a second best to a relationship that we can have with the king that God chooses. Because when we commit to covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, there are no degrees of separation. Yeah, we, we're knitted together with him, or as the Bible puts it, we're united with Christ completely, fully and forever. Nothing can separate us from his love. That's what we're promised. And, and we come into an oath in blood, in his blood shed on the cross, which extends to the very extremes of life and death. His death, so that we can have life. And, and, and what we gain is a king who serves us in a world of self-interest. Yeah, and, and a king of unfailing kindness in, in the world that we live in, a world of cruelty. And, and a king of deep emotion in a world that often struggles to express emotion. And a king of peaceful friendship in a world of rivalry. Everything worth having comes at a cost. And I can't think of anything 
more worth having than that. Why don't we pray? Father God, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he dies on the cross, seals a covenant in his own blood so that we can come into a committed relationship with him. We know, Father God, that, 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 that we sometimes have to pay a cost, but nothing like the cost that he's already paid. And we know that we have everything to benefit from a king who serves us, a king of kindness, a king of emotion, and the prince of peace. Please help us value unity with that king to the extent that we are pleased to pay the cost. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.